0: Hello, my name is Leszek Jaruzdzewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello and welcome to Liberal Europe podcast. My name is Leszek Jaruzdzewski and my guest today is Getika Mantri, who uh, before coming to Blavatnik School of Governments, being my fellow colleague here um it was um a journalist in india and um so welcome gadika thank you for accepting the invitation it's such a pleasure to to talk to you and maybe why don't you start with telling us what you've been writing about back back in india
1: sure i can do that um thank you so much for having me on your podcast it's good to finally see how this happens in flesh and blood um so when i was in india i worked with an organization called the news minute and the news minute focuses on the five southern states of india we of course write on national issues as well but with a focus on vo- uh, voices from the south and i i mean like like every journalist i think i just cast around a little bit uh, when i started off did a little bit of interviews startups features this and that but i think i finally zeroed in uh, on gender and sexual violence, um, and also, like, mental health. And these were the issues that I wrote on primarily. I did a lot of long-form stories as well, which involved over 1,500 to 2,000 words, so much more in-depth in terms of research, interviews, narratives, and so on. So, um, yeah, these were my key topics of expertise, you could say.
0: Have you found that people as you as you progress in your writing kind of follow those issues more Would you say that there's more interest in like gender issues now in India than it was like five six years ago
1: yes i think there's definitely more interest in um gender issues in india now i think the scale sort of tipped at least in my recent memory in uh, 2012 when the gang rape happened in delhi which became like national and international news um nationwide protest broke out uh, essentially a uh, 23 year old physiotherapy students were sexually assaulted by multiple men uh, on a moving bus in Delhi which is the national capital and uh, I mean the details of the assault I will not go into because it's 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 unnecessary and just too painful but it caused massive protests throughout India uh, caused also the government to change the uh, change one of the laws to um say that there'll be higher punishment higher minimum punishment for rape in india and things like that um i guess that was one of the key points in recent history where i think sexual violence and gender and women's issues sort of took the limelight and you know now and and it's not like sexual assault didn't happen in india before that and it didn't happen to that scale after that there have been of course many many incidents of gender-based violence um But I think that just stayed in public memory and it still stays in public memory. And since then to now, there are a lot more journalists who are interested in writing about gender. There's a lot of literature now that's more um, gender focused, even things like um, entertainment journalism, which is even film reviews. There's There's a small portion of people and actors even sort of looking at entertainment and popular culture through the gender lens so there's definitely more just
0: i wonder how do you feel that um like in everyday basis the is women feel endangered by the potential of sexual violence is it like the everyday reality or just certain areas of you know so-called bad areas of the city of the country i was like this is potentially dangerous for all women in India? How how, how how does it feel being a woman in India?
1: Right, uh, that's a really complex question, but I will try to answer that in parts. I think firstly, as a woman, and uh, I would say as a woman in pretty much most parts of the world, there is a threat of sexual violence. You're always sort of looking in your peripheral vision in terms of, no matter what time of the day, you know, night especially, but no matter what time of the day, uh, you're always sort of looking behind your shoulder, looking from the side of your eye as to who's walking around you, who's walking in front of you. Is there a shadow? Um, it's just part of how we are conditioned at this point. Not because, uh, not only because sexual assault is a reality, but also because sexual assault for a lot of women is... Um, you know, we are conditioned into believing that is the worst possible thing that could happen to you. And and it is one of the worst things that could happen to you. But for a lot of women and in a lot of communities, it's tied to the idea of honor and purity, which um, makes women fear it a lot, apart from like the, the violence and the uh, violation of it. So, of course, the, the threat exists in India also. Um, In terms of if there are specific parts of India where women feel more unsafe, I would say yes. There are certain parts and cities and towns and or, you know, even areas of certain places that, you know, simple things like that may not be as well lit um, at night. Those are places where women might feel more unsafe at certain points in the day. Um, But I do think it's, it's, it's a more universal experience uh the threat of it and the fear of it it's the degree that varies like for example in another country i may not feel as unsafe uh whereas in india or afghanistan for that matter right um the degree and the threat of it would be heightened i think it's 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 the degree and not the incidence because the incidence and the threat is pretty much i think existent existent everywhere
0: I think that past 2012 I mean there was the world news I mean everyone was talking about it there was a lot of criticism well from abroad but more importantly from India that the kind of patriarchal culture can be one of the reasons of, of well kind of ac- maybe not acceptance but it is toler- tolerance in certain places for, for violence and especially sexual violence Do you feel that this debate is still going on? I mean, and do you think that this criticism was fair? Because it's sometimes easy to associate, as you you said, that women feel threatened basically everywhere and for the good reason, unfortunately. To what extent do you think the so-called cultural issues play the role here?
1: That's a good point. And um, I think I I was going to mention that, but I lost my train of thought. (laughs) But I I do think that in countries like India, um, Mm. where it is a very patriarchal society and the idea of culture and honor is a lot of times rooted in the women of the community um it, it becomes much harder for a woman to live her life and uh, because because sexual violence is not just sexual violence th- sorry going off track a little bit but i i feel like this is important this is important to say sexual violence i would say is rarely ever about pleasure it is rarely ever about sex alone sexual violence is about power so what do you do when a woman um, does not behave according to what the cultural norms are? A lot In a lot of communities, for different reasons, and, you know, India included, a lot of times sexual violence is how um, the punitive or quote-unquote corrective action is taken against her. Um, especially, like, when you look at the caste system, uh, Dalit women who are in the in the lowest of the, in the caste hierarchy um, do face a lot of sexual violence and sexual exploitation from um, men in the upper castes. And uh, and to come back to your question, in terms of whether culture um, and the the fabric of the society, which is largely patriarchal, how much role that plays? I think it does play a very important role. It does. Um, it does put more curbs on what is acceptable for women to do and not do. And uh, when that is there and it's very hard to push back against it, although things, I mean, things are changing, but not to the extent that perhaps a lot of us want them to. As long as that pushback is there, uh, I do think that there is more threat to women's agency and women's safety.
0: You mentioned the caste system i think it's for for someone who hasn't been to india and or is not from india it's it's hard to understand how does it work in kind of like (laughs) practical everyday terms can you like describe the interaction from people who are from different castes how is it known that people are from different castes like also like britain is a very class society to some extent you can tell by the accents for example um, by the conduct of people i wonder if you if you can ask more how would it work in practice in, in India.
1: Okay. So the caste system is very complex, and it's, I mean, it's not surprising that a lot of people who have not lived with that day in and day out do not understand it. Um, and I would preface everything I'm going to say with the fact that I am a privileged upper caste woman. So, mm. so my, what's your caste? Sorry?
0: What's your caste?
1: I would rather not answer that question. it's No, I, I mean it, there there are a lot of castes in India but like that's besides the point. I am okay. upper caste and I, okay. I I I understand that I come from a lot of privilege and uh it's something that especially being a journalist you start being more critical about it and sort of when you talk to more people who are from lower caste or who are from uh Dal- who are dalits you sort of realize just the sort of things that you've taken for granted um which are not which they've not been allowed to do so the caste system is a system of social hierarchy which is based on birth so basically if you're born to people from a certain caste you are that caste you like you belong to that caste there's not really a way to change it quote unquote like for example if i'm Hindu, tomorrow I could convert to another religion, right? Uh, At least on paper, that's possible. But you're, I mean, you're born into a certain caste, and that remains your caste. So there are multiple castes in India. And there's a lot of resistance to, um, say, marrying outside your caste. Uh, Especially when you consider that a majority of Marriages in India, a well, majority of matches in India are still arranged by parents uh, who also prefer that their children sort of marry, um, you know, in their own caste. So, yeah, so it's it's not as simple as a class system, which could be determined by income levels. Uh, it's more of a social system, but ca- class and caste in India do intersect because people who belong to uh, lower caste or people who are Dalits, for example, do... Um I mean they they they've faced generational disadvantages so it is often that people who are upper caste are also upper class and people who are low caste and are also poor and also face like socio-economic discriminations so and it's not just the fact that um there are these groups there's discrimination that is justified on basis of the caste system. So for example, there are multiple uh, uh, there are multiple practice practices in India which um, uh, have you have you if you've heard about untouchability that would yeah. Yeah, yeah, be right.
0: you would be good if yeah. you <laughs> so Because we so, talk about Dalis as well. I think yes. it's good if you So explain.
1: untouchability is a concept where um, you discriminate against a section of people um, based on the assumption that their touch is impure. It's dirty. And that's, of course, a very simplistic explanation that I'm giving. Um, So this would involve practices like um, disallowing them from using common resources like wells in a village, like eating from the same utensils in a public, in a community setting. Um, Even things like, you know, you're not allowed to like, you're not allowed to enter the house because... You know, you're you're a Dalit and it's the house of someone who is from an upper caste. And, and of
0: numbers, I'm curious. How many you think I assume might be Dalits in India?
1: I think there was uh, Dalits particularly, I'm not sure because there's a caste census, if I'm not wrong, that is um, that was supposed to take place. But I do think, and these are these are very dated numbers, they're not very up to date, but I do think that fifty-two percent of India is not upper caste okay yeah is not from that uh privileged upper caste sort of background they are uh other backward classes and lower caste and dalits i think that's a fifty. i mean and i i think these are numbers from like 10 years ago or something i can
0: check right. and get back to you and untouchables would be like
1: uh untouchables is not a caste per se uh untouchability is a practice it's a it's a form of discrimination that is practiced against uh dalits so yeah i i I don't want to make a guess no, but it's, it's it's like
0: large it's like theres ten, a, there's a substantial yeah,
1: there's a substantial number of people right. who are affected by it, right, yeah, so, yeah, so the caste system finds ways in um, I mean, it's not just something that is there in rural India, for example, it is very much in place in urban India as well, um and a lot of people would like you to believe that caste is dead but it's not because mm. um parents still want you to marry within your own caste they still would they when when they put out advertisements for domestic workers for example they do sometimes specify wanted we want a brahmin vegetarian cook to come and cook there and so these are the ways in which caste still permeates uh our social fabric so it's it's a lot of people would like you to believe that it's a it's an urban rur- rural divide where like it's mostly practiced in rural areas and not in urban areas anymore. But I think that's untrue.
0: I'm curious if, especially, I think is like natural for young people. You go to school, you go to university, and it's a kind of like inherited thing. I, I'm I'm curious to what extent it's also natural for you when you grow up that it basically kind of defines who you are, and to what extent you try to transgress or to what extent it's almost not possible because basically it wouldn't be appropriate or it's almost impossible. So like if you go to school or you have friends, would it be like people from the upper caste or lower caste, depending on which caste you were born, or would it be more mixed, but then your parents will tell you we don't necessarily need this person to come to our house, for example. And then you would. or would you also know? Because I it's not me to very obvious like would you know by the name of the person or by the way that you interact with this person, that they are from different castes or by the way they look or dress? Can you? I know it might be, it might be a very naive question, but I think it would be very interesting if you can share it.
1: Right. Um, a lot of people can tell cast by people's surnames, uh, by their second names. Um, so that's one. And two, maybe this incident will give you some insight. Before coming here, I used to go swimming Uh, every evening and one time I was in the pool and there were this bunch of like three four kids who were also swimming and I remember just like taking a breath after a few laps and just like sort of being on one side of the pool and this kid I heard them casually ask the other three four she was just like what's your cast Hmm. and I was I just, I was so shocked because I, I mean, that's, that's not something that you want to ask. At least I would assume that that's not something you want to want to ask because you don't want to judge someone by that. Um, if someone tells you, if someone, a lot of, for example, a lot of, um, Dalit activists are very open about the fact that they are Dalits and they, they, they reclaim and they own their identity. And so it's they... not like
0: obvious to everyone unless... I it, mean...
1: Like I said, it, it, it depends because yeah. a lot of people do have their caste names as their surnames. And a lot of times um, there are certain surnames that are known to be part of certain castes. I know it's it's really complicated no, but
0: no, no, absolutely. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm still so you, so, uh.
1: So, uh, so a lot of times when you hear someone's full name right you you can sort of tell in your head okay this person is from that caste uh personally I I mean I don't remember growing up and thinking that but I know for a fact that there are a lot of people in my own extended family who have this knowledge and like who would ask for you know who would sort of make that observation when they ask for someone's full name in terms of whether you when when you're going to school and would you happen to be friends with people from your own caste i think that's that's a very interesting question because i think that shows how um how socioeconomic this is and how class and caste often inter- often intersect because if i'm going to a private school for example which mm. has you know a decent to a hefty fees and i because of the generational privilege that i've had and the and the exploitation that my wealth is built on for example i'm able to send my kids to a private school um, a posh school it's very likely that the other parents who also send their kids to this school also are upper caste and you know they they've been able to sort of capitalize on the gains of the exploitation of people who are dalits or who are lower caste so automatically because you're in that school with people from similar backgrounds you will end up making friends from people who come from a similar socio-economic right. caste as you uh, uh sorry social similar socio-economic yeah. background as you which would of course also include caste
0: of course yeah I, I i kind of that's that's what what could be kind of suspected right it's it's like also perhaps here if like you go to public school that's how you how you how you go through your life uh, in different social circles? Maybe um, well, it, it's it's a fascinating subject, but uh, I think we might take a, a step back from 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 this to to talk about um, perhaps Hindu nationalism, which being like the another big issue, yeah. <laughs> perhaps <laughs> uh, uh, discussed also abroad. Um, how do you um, being a journalist at 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 this time of? the rise of, of, of nationalism of, of, of Modi, also, well, big clashes within India. How would, you, how would you describe the phenomenon of actually rising this force in the, such a multicultural, multicultural country? It almost seems like a suicidal mission, but of course, the, well, Hindu are the biggest group, but still, it almost seems like it could be a threat to the like, India integrity, uh, but it seems it doesn't actually. It's a very useful and powerful tool, political tool how would you describe this phenomenon from indian perspective from journalist perspective
1: right i think there there are there are several layers to this and i don't want to discount the historical context the historical context that being that of colonization and um, you know the the british sort of the, the divide and rule strategy that we studied about in schools but but had a very real impact in stoking existing tensions between a lot of Um, communities in India, including Hindus and Muslims. So I feel like the seeds were sowed like right there. And of course, the riots and the the deaths that happened when the partition took place in 1947. India was divided into India and Pakistan, right? So that's a little bit of the context to keep in mind. Uh, Fast forward to 2014, which is when the BJP came to power for the first time. I think the context at the time was... Um, that there was massive corruption that had been exposed in the Congress, which was the ruling party before the BJP. Uh, There were massive anti-corruption protests. There was uh, the 2G scam. There there were just like a bunch of things. And I think there was a lot of disillusionment uh, associated with the Congress at the time. And the BJP provided the alternative. And also, the fact, I, I don't think that... Hindutva and Hindu, Hindu nationalism is a new phenomenon in India. It's, it's been there for a, for a while, except now it's very blatant. And it's, it's, being, it's being practiced, Hindu nationalism uh, and Hindutva is being paraded in the open with a lot of impunity. And I think that is what has changed. Primarily, I don't think Hindutva and Hindu nationalism were never there in the country. But the fact that the BJP is in power, there are a lot of um, leaders from the party who very openly talk about India, the aspiration for India to be a Hindu nation, right? Um, I think that has given a lot of people the, the boldness that they were lacking earlier to also sort of openly say a lot of things that could be deemed as Islamophobic, that could be deemed as anti-minority. And I think the fact that all of these sentiments have now found legitimacy, and because when you legitimize people who are already in the elite, they don't want to let go of that power, right? I know people who would now support uh, the ruling party, no matter what, like who are very unwilling to be critical of it, right? And I think that's a function of not wanting to let go of the legitimacy that they finally have to say the things that they feel regardless, uh, without the fear of repercussion.
0: It's. It seems from your description, this is very much a political phenomenon based on the cultural Ideological preconditions that were before, and um, is it because of the weakness of the of the Congress of that well major Indian party, or do you think there were other like the triggers which which caused, or is it like that Modi became like to power as a kind of anti-corruption pro-business person and then transform into this kind of like ideological nationalist leader? But so you think that it was actually this transition that now makes national even stronger force than before or do you think that maybe also something changed in the society before actually he came to power so it was actually possible for uh, for him to, to dominate indian politics
1: i think it's a lot of the things that you pointed out yourself initially i think when in 2014 when modi came to power he was seen as a very pro-business pro economy pro-progress um sort of agenda which I think a lot of people were on board with and even in fact even are on board with right Um, and I remember speaking to some people at the time I was I was not working as a journalist in 2014 I was still studying but I remember speaking to a lot of people at the time and having this impression that people are very glad that there's somebody who is looking out for us You know, who is looking out for our growth, our domestic economy, uh, our businesses, and so on and so forth. Of course, the critiques were there, but, you know, this was the sort of sentiment. And I think you're right in terms of, at least the way I see it, I think it did transform from there to like, you know, sort of slowly putting in these ideas and realizing, okay, people are responding to it. People are very keen on... um, you know brandishing the fact that brandishing may be a you know an extreme word but very very yeah. they're very happy to be able to sort of um wear the fact that they are traditional hindu men nationalists proudly on their chest because the person who is at the top of the country is doing that so why can't we so i think what the, your your analysis is not too far off from my own idea which is that i think it started off with the ideas of sort of anti corruption economy this that and i think it just it it took root it took root at the time um not at the time i mean but but it 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 took root when the bjp came to power and then i think it just like burgeoned from there not to say that the bjp suddenly became like a hindu nationalist party it has roots in the rashtriya swayamsevak sang the rss which is a grassroots organization which has um branches in all over india and which um has very much been you know a, a hindu nationalist organization so it has roots there, and you know the bjp's sort of ideology was always this but i think it was more moderate back in the day I think the fact that it's so blatant and out there and uh, no holds barred now definitely has to do with the fact that they know that people are responding to it. They know that people are very much like we don't want certain minorities in our country. We don't really want um, to have anyone else. And, you know, we're, we're okay with the idea of India being a Hindu nation.
0: Um, we'll be slowly moving to, to the close of our conversation uh, I wanted to ask you um, like last two questions uh, mm-hmm. first one would be how do you see the situation evolving and perhaps your role if you decide to come back or after you decide to come back to to India how do you think because India is developing enormously in mm-hmm. economic terms how do you see the socio-political evolution of India
1: so um, I think in terms of in terms of what's going to happen i'm not i'm not the most hopeful person to talk about with regard to that because i think my views have been molded by my experience as a journalist and i have noticed that, that there is uh, lesser and lesser room for dissent i have noticed that there is lesser room for independent media and i think that's a marker of where public opinion, or at least the public opinion that's actually out there in the public, what the authorities think that should be. Because there are a lot of journalists in India who in the last 10 years or so have been pulled up, um, jailed, uh, slapped with cases of sedition and defamation and this and that. So I think I think those are markers of a, of a society which is valuing a homogeneous, um, nationalistic idea of a country more than plurality and more than, you know, the the right to actually um, be able to express dissent, which is a crucial part of democracy. So I guess the future in terms of what the social fabric is going to look like is, I think, quite fraught mm. because... There are rising tensions, there is less tolerance, there is lesser room to have uncomfortable conversations. And I'm not just talking in the public domain, but in the private domain, because I know for a fact that many people of my age, um, even younger and, you know, myself included, have found it, have been finding it increasingly difficult to have conversations about politics in our own homes. Because the ideas of our parents and and their parents are very are, have suddenly found legitimacy in the idea of a Hindu nation, and they don't like hearing uh, that we think differently. They don't like hearing that we don't agree, and they don't like they, they feel very threatened when we express that this is actually not the idea of India that I want. So I, I think that there is there is a lot of shrinkage in terms of what sort of conversations you can have. Uh, in the public and private free expression and um, your liberties and values of secularism are under threat in India I would say but I think I also think that there's hope because there are a lot of people and a lot of communities which go about their lives without really looking at who's from what religion and on principle if they are from a certain community which is different to ours we're going to discriminate against them there is a lot of solidarity I think in, um, in the common, some of the common cultural practices that we have. And I do see hope there. I also see hope in the people that do continue to express dissent, do continue to speak their mind, and battle the idea that nationalism has to agree with love for the government. Because true nationalism is actually love for your country. And that if you love your country... Why would you not criticize your government, right? So I think that's that, a very good point. Yes. Yeah. So I think I do think that there is hope there, but those voices could use a little more room.
0: And the last question and the short answer from you, being a journalist, being here in Oxford, in UK, in Europe, what are these stories? That untold stories that should be told here about India that you don't see and maybe you would like to see
1: I think the I I think the idea that India is not just an oriental land of I don't know spices and inspiration porn and poverty porn you know we are it's, it's a place where there are a lot of people who, by the way, speak great English, because a lot of people here sometimes are shocked that you have brown skin, you're from India, but oh my god, you speak such good English. Well, yeah, I was colonized by you guys for 200 years. So you bet. Mm. (laughs) But um, I think the stories from India that are about people who are doing really good work for their communities in ways big and small, right? Like, they don't even have to be activists and lawyers. They could be people who are restoring rights of um, tribal communities, people who are working for Dalit rights, people who are, you know, just doing just doing a lot of work, even though it's an uphill climb, because because of the reasons that I just told you about. So it's not just a place where where you know you hear a certain kind of music, you eat spicy food, you eat um you you there's a lot of heat and there's a lot of diversity it it is it is a place where people have incredible stories to tell there's a lot of pain in the history as well but i think there's a lot of there's a lot of solidarity that has come out from in between a lot of people from different kinds of difficult situations as well and i i do think that those stories can be amazing to tell and hear
0: I think we just got one of those stories here. Thank you so much for going, <laughs> being so open and, and gentle and uh, also moving beyond the stereotypes that, that we might have here. Thank you so much for being at the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It was the Liberal Europe podcast, Untold Stories series. Uh, I'm Leszek Ożdżewski. Um Please tune in in two weeks' time. In a week time for Ricardo. Until two weeks, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.